Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Everyone listening to this show knows of the nearly one million Southerners who fought for the Confederate States of America. And most of us know something about the 200,000 African Americans, many also from the South, who fought for the United States of America. Less well known are the small but significant number of white Southerners who also remained loyal to the U.S. enough to form regiments in every Confederate state but South Carolina. Their long-forgotten role is revealed now by Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. We'll talk with Dr. Butler tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa. Play Finding Your Frequency Podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight, not from the third floor of the Brewster Building, but from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina. Not because there's anything wrong with the Brewster Building. There may be something wrong with the Brewster Building. The unusual number of people have suffered uh, uh, cases of cancer there in the last 15 years, and, and there's an investigation going on. We're assured they haven't found anything yet, but that's not why I'm not there. I'm not there because uh, Mrs. Civil War Talk Radio, Emily, my wife, is away uh, in uh, taking a group of high schoolers from her school overseas. They are in Spain. She is chaperoning them tonight. And uh, with the house empty and quiet, I decided to use the home computer and talk to you from there. Uh, I'm still not speaking for East Carolina University, which I haven't mentioned yet, where I work during the day. Uh, And my guest, likewise, will not speak for his institution or for any institution. We both talk just for ourselves, as we always do here. Uh, 
And so not representing ECU, I will point out that the history department at East Carolina, where I have enjoyed spending the last uh, 19 or so years, has an opening for department chair. And I know some of you listening actually are in the academic world. Uh, If you're interested in uh, moving from whatever position you have currently to chairing a substantial history department, uh, take a look online. You know where to look for job announcements. Uh, But we are delighted to be able to advertise an opening for a department chair to hire someone from the outside. The last uh, the current chair is an interim from within the department, and the one before that, same thing. Before that, we had a, a chair who was a member of our department. And before that, it was my turn for eight years, and uh, so on. It's always been someone internal. But uh, the the high-level administrator who thought history was bunk has finally been promoted to somewhere else on campus. He's a nice guy in person, but his... his Disdain for history has really been unfortunate, and we haven't been able to hire new people for uh, quite some time or get new budget because of of his views and those of others he influences. Uh, But he's he's not uh, in in the position where he affects our end of campus right now, and the current administration has agreed to let us hire someone uh, from outside the campus. So we'll get someone new. You may be thinking, uh, if you're listening to the show, you, you you do Civil War, and you're thinking, why would I want to go there? They've already got a brilliant Civil War historian on staff. Uh, the answer is, if you come here as department chair, of course, you will not be uh, teaching that much. You know, chairs do other things. And after you served a term, maybe four or five years, whatever, uh, I'll be looking at retirement in the face by that time. And uh, so if you're a Civil War specialist, this wouldn't be a bad place to uh, to be an administrative person for a few years and then resume uh, teaching and writing on that specialty. Uh, and if we overlapped for a few years doing that, there's, there's enough to teach for both of us. So it would be good. So uh, if you are interested or if you know someone who's interested, uh, spread the word. Uh, we're looking for a department chair. We're also looking for a football bowl game. East Carolina Pirates defeated Brigham Young on the road. It was a great game, last-second field goal. And my alma mater, Michigan, won the in-state annual grudge match against Michigan State. But if you're at all following college football, you know the real story was that after the game, some of the players on the visiting team uh, violently attacked uh, a, a Michigan play, two Michigan players, while they were in the tunnel from the field to the locker rooms. And if, if, if you follow it, you already know the story. You've seen the films. It, it's, it's not pleasant to watch, uh, to see people being ganged up on like this. But my two cents to throw in on that is if uh, outsiders are saying, oh, well, they shouldn't have a single tunnel leading to the two locker rooms. There's bound to be trouble. They've had a single tunnel leading to two locker rooms for over 90 years. Uh, 600 home games have been played in that stadium without one team's players beating up another team's players in the tunnel. Uh, The question should not be asked, why do they have a single tunnel? It should be asked, why do people behave like that? Uh, It's it's not the architecture that caused this incident. 
Michigan has played Ohio State. It's our rival uh, for almost a century in that stadium, and there's never been an incident like that. Uh, they've played many, many teams. Uh, it, it's it, it's not the fault of the tunnel. Well, let's move on to more pleasant things. Uh, East Carolina soccer has come to an end. The women's season ended with a one nothing playoff loss to Memphis, but it was a good season. And after the game, no ECU soccer players assaulted their opponents, despite their frustration. Uh, whether they have a tunnel or not, I don't know. Let's get back to Civil War next week on Civil War Talk Radio. Alexander Rose, who has written things that people outside of our field are interested in, uh, has also written a Civil War book, The Lion and the Fox, Two Rival Spies and the Secret Plot to Build a Confederate Navy. We'll chat with him about that. We'll talk with David K. Thompson about his new book, Bonds of War, How Civil War Financial Agents Sold the World on the Union. And then we'll have, uh, let's turn the page here and see, then it's Thanksgiving. That's why there's no, no show the following week. We will... Uh, take the week off as, as you will do the same if you're in the United States. And then uh, we'll come back at the end of the month of November 2022, where we are right now, uh, with uh, Brad Gottfried, who has been on the show before and will be on again. He has a new book comparing the Antietam and Gettysburg campaigns in a sort of day-by-day fashion. Looks very interesting. We'll finish up the academic semester and the season with uh, Donna McCreary and her question and answer biography of Mary Lincoln called Mary Lincoln Demystified. Where would someone get the idea of writing a question and answer biography about somebody named Lincoln? We'll ask Donna that question. And we'll finish up on the 14th of December with Gary Gallagher. You know him. Uh, He's edited a the Army of the Potomac Trilogy by Bruce Catton, and you certainly know his work, uh, and and it will be an excuse for all of us to reread Catton, or if you haven't read it for the first time, you're in for a treat. Um, and I'm looking forward to dipping back into the, the, uh, the Catton uh, works and talking about them with Gary on December 14th. You can follow all that, as always, at www.impedimentsofwar.org. While you're there, you can contribute to the show, press the PayPal button, name a multi-digit number, and it will take that many dollars out of your account and put them in mine. It will not give you credit for tax deductibility. It's not a charity. It's not a 501c3, but it will make you feel good. It will make me feel good. I will buy books with it or something else with it. Um, maybe a new computer mouse. This one is giving me trouble tonight. Uh, but not so much trouble that we cannot talk with our guest. Uh, he is Clayton J. Butler and has written a brand new book, True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War. Dr. Butler, are you there? I'm here, yes, thanks. Uh, welcome to the show. The um, The first question I typically ask people, so I'll start that with you is is what uh, what do you do when you're not writing about the Civil War? What uh, uh, what what's the day job? Sure. Uh, well, I currently work for the University of Virginia Press uh, in their marketing department. I handle uh, marketing, publicity, sales. I graduated 
from the history department. Uh, got my PhD from the history department at UVA uh, in 2020, um, and got a postdoc uh, through the Now Center for Civil War History there. Uh, and part of that postdoc was um, a half-time, about 20 hours a week internship working at the University of Virginia Press with Nadine Zimmerly, who is the history uh, acquisitions editor there. And uh, so I, I've been working there since the fall of 2020 in a position to open up in the marketing department uh, about a year ago. And so I've been uh, been an official hire uh for about six months at UVA Press. I've really enjoyed my time there. It's, it's great to be in the academic publishing world. It's an interesting world. I don't know if we've ever had anyone on the show working for an academic publisher. We've talked to many people who write for them. We've talked to people who do other forms of public history. But uh, And we've talked to people, and I count myself as one of them, who went to grad school without any thought they would do anything but become a professor, and then they end up doing some form of public history and really enjoying it. Um, so I, I'm guessing this wasn't your initial, this wasn't plan A. No, um, not, not not necessarily, but um, I'm really enjoying working at the UVA Press. It's, it's nice to be in the academic ecosystem and and to where the rubber hits the road in terms of, uh, you know, the material getting into into people's hands uh, and into classrooms especially you know we, we UVA press puts out a lot of uh, really very fine work uh, in many fields but in Civil War history uh, certainly among them um, Apostles of Disunion for example by Charles Dew is a UVA press book we have coming out uh, in the spring the book uh, marching masters um, by Colin Woodward, uh, really uh, fine work, and it's it's very interesting to be involved in different stages of the process, from revision of the dissertation, editing, you know, peer review to uh, to publication. I, I mean, it really does sound interesting. That that again, I you know worked in a museum when I got was finishing my graduate degree and had no intention of doing that. Kind of fell into it, and it turned out to be just a wonderful opportunity, and I can imagine the same thing about academic publishing. To be able to uh, um, to do something like that, uh, you know what what a uh, you know what a huge advantage to uh, uh, to see the publishing game, as it were, from the other side. Now I know your book is published by LSU Press, LSU Press, along with. Uh, uh, UNC Press, uh, UVA, Kent State, a few others are are well known for their Civil War works, but I guess that that avoids any accusations of, of nepotism. It's not like the press is published. You didn't get this book published because you work at UVA Press. No, there uh, that would probably be ethically dubious. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I as you say, I pitched to to a few presses, uh, LSU. Um, UNC, Georgia as well, uh, mm-hmm. places have, as you say, like a really very good reputation uh, and history of putting out, uh, you know, the, the books that my, in my bibliography uh, for my dissertation. Um, so it was very flattering to be able to work with them and, and to have them publish my work. I was, I was really thrilled. Uh, and also, you know, uh, as I'm sure we'll get into a little bit in our discussion, uh, my work 
has much more to has uh, you know I have a chapter um, out of Louisiana Regiment. Louisiana is very much part of the subject of my dissertation and my revised dissertation that became my book. So uh, it was in that way as well. Uh, felt like a natural fit. Well, it does. That does make sense, and that's one of the things people sometimes overlook when they're they're looking at where to publish or when readers are reading a book. You, you know, may wonder as a reader where how did this book get with this press or what role does the press play? And uh, certainly, regional connections do make a difference. So, it, it, I I didn't mean to to say in this topic, but I just find it so interesting uh, having your background. Uh, you know, it gives you an insight where where books that are sent to academic presses are reviewed by outside readers, but there's also people on staff like yourself who can read a manuscript and and you know have the professional training to know what they're talking about. Um, but I re- I don't want to stay stay on this too long. I, uh, let's get to the the topic of the book, and to do that, what we'll do first is take a short break. Uh, we'll come back in a very short time and talk with our guest tonight, Clayton J. Butler. He's the author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? We don't think so. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Ed Cheney. Ed and his guests will explain full-spectrum CBD using the whole hemp plant for good health and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu.edu. 
Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. So, Clayton, when we talk about white unionists, is this a large – well, we know it's not a large group. How large a group is this? What are we talking about? Well, uh, yes, it is a small group, uh, and especially in the Deep South, which is where I based uh, my research – you know, when one hears about unionists during the Civil War, white unionists, that is, um, uh, they tend to be located in places like West Virginia, East Tennessee, the upper and the border south, or in places like Missouri, uh, you know, the trans-Mississippi West, sort of bushwhacking mm-hmm. country. Um, and there are, they're, they're not a, a large you know, number of uh, unionists there either, but they're particularly scarce in places that I looked, um, which is the Deep South, the original seven uh, seceding states. In terms of a percentage of the population, it, it, it really depends where, even where in the state that you are. Mm-hmm. Um, in, places, in parts of northern Alabama, you will find a... a an unusually high percentage of unionists, um, white unionists for, for the state, a state which is really uh, overall profoundly pro-Confederate among its white population. In a city like New Orleans, which um, you know is very much part of the Deep South and, and should be considered as such, you also have uh, a, 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 a strong proportion of unionism, especially among uh Immigrant populations, Germans, Irish, uh, people who are loyal to the Union uh, and remain loyal to the Union for reasons very similar to their counterparts in the North. Um, but you're really not talking about, as a, as a kind of, as a statewide or a, a region-wide proportion, anywhere more than 5 to 10 percent really tops. Um uh, a, a white unionist population in, in, in these deep South Confederate states. So if the numbers are so small, where do you find research material for, for this project? Well, um, one of the reasons, one of the ways I found research material is that they uh, were partisans on both sides of the conflict, both in the United States and the Confederacy, were very interested in this small minority of people. They meant a great deal to both sides. And for that reason, they're, uh, they're pointed out, they're discussed um, and scrutinized uh, by people um, on both sides of, of the conflict. Um, but my methodology and my my strategy for, for finding out who these people were, what their motivations were, where they came from, uh, was to, to zero in on these regiments. Um, you mentioned that every... Every Confederate state, bar South Carolina, South Carolina, of course, the perpetual exception uh, when it's Civil War history, um, you know, contributed um, regiments of white Union soldiers. And I decided to use uh, the 1st Alabama Cavalry, 1st Louisiana Cavalry, and the 13th Tennessee uh, Cavalry, or Bradford's Battalion, as they were alternatively known. Because for a couple of reasons, one was that enlisting in the Union Army or the Union military um, for a white Southerner during the Civil War was about as unambiguous an expression of unconditional unionism as one could make. It was 
a profound statement of unbroken citizenship to the United States and loyalty in a time when national loyalty could appear can appear fluid in retrospect can be um, can be folded in into itself people tried to stay neutral people tried to stay out of the conflict altogether if they could people who volunteered men who volunteered for union service uh, were unabashed and 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 about their loyalty to the United States. So that made methodolo methodologically my task uh, a little bit easier in terms of determining um, who who to scrutinize and who to look at. So you've got these three regiments as, as case studies, and it makes sense then to, to for the reasons you suggest. Um, so what – I was struck by how you describe in your first chapter uh, – to the obvious question, well, what made people do this? Um, well, I'll, I'll let you answer it. What, what made white Southerners stay loyal to the, the Union? Well, I think um, what made white Southerners stay loyal to the Union um, fell into it was very similar terms to what made Northerners stay loyal to the Union. The, the, the terms of unionism, the terms of loyalty – to the Union are very strikingly similar uh, among white Southern Unionists when you when you compare them to uh, Unionists in the North. Um, this is a complicated phenomenon and something that I think um, can be easily lost on the public on public consciousness today. But the precariousness and the preciousness of the Union. Um, in the mid 19th century is something that we've for people, for Americans who were born in the 20th century, is almost impossible to access um, for without without consulting basically the historical record, a mm -hmm. sense of what that was like, and the the political, economic, and religious freedom that the Union represented to people. Um, you're gonna you mentioned uh, in your introduction that you're going to have um, Gary Gallagher on in a few weeks, mm -hmm. and this has been the the thrust of his, uh, one of his main points of his career um, in terms of pedagogy is, uh, is is emphasizing what the union meant as a cause in and of itself to people in the 19th century. Um, he was, of course, I should mention, he was my, my principal advisor on my dissertation here at UVA. <laughs> and he really, um, you know, I suppose it's probably unsurprising that I totally concur with him in that, <laughs> in that, uh, that assessment. Um, but you find it uh, this is is borne out in the primary sources that the reasons that white Southerners give uh, for their loyalty to the Union are, are very similar to those given by Northerners. Um, what well, I think my unionists demonstrate that <laughs> Northerners don't is that there are they're not there's there's among white Southerners in 1860 there's almost non-existent. Um, opposition to to slavery as an institution mm -hmm. so if you take an opposition to slavery out of the equation uh which you can't do for many northerners but uh then then the question of why they would support the union or or their unionism as a discrete cause becomes much more clear i think if that makes any sense and yeah and i think that's that's what my the, the unionists in the deep south i think have to offer uh, in terms of an understanding of 
uh, the Civil War is the, is the sort of cultural purchase that the Union had, even in places like the Deep South um, uh, in the mid-19th century. Well, I, I think that's a great point. I agree with, with you and with, with Gary Gallagher about that, that the the notion of union as this this hold, having this mystic hold on a big part of the American public is, is very much hard to teach to undergraduates, very much hard to, to conjure up for readers. Uh, but uh, because the union has not been under threat for, for 150 years, we take it for granted. But they lived in a world where the idea of a of people governing themselves was not to be taken for granted. It was, it was the last best hope of Earth, as Lincoln put it. Uh, and and you, the, you hear it in Lincoln's, uh, you know, when people ask, you know, what did the Union mean to people? It meant mm-hmm. government by the people, for the people, of the people. What Lincoln invoked at Gettysburg. I mm-hmm. remember teaching a class on the Civil War and, and asking my students, you know, what does Lincoln say about slavery in the Gettysburg Address? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And mm-hmm. that's um, that's not to say that slavery wasn't the fundamentally the cause of the war, which the evidence com- it, it was. Right. But it also, uh, yeah, the evidence, as I you know, say, the evidence compels us to take the union as a cause in and of itself seriously on its own terms, because anybody who looks at um, the words of contemporaries and, and people who lived in that time, it's it's it flies in your face constantly. It it does, and it. it uh... Just to get on my own high horse, the, the one of the problems we have today is in convincing people who aren't Civil War students that slavery is the obvious main cause of the war is a reluctance to accept the, the syllogism uh, South slavery bad, therefore North freedom good. Uh, it's not that way. It's not North fighting for freedom. It's North fighting for union. Uh, and freedom will only for the enslaved will only be added halfway through the war. Uh, union is the overriding cause when it starts. But what I found intriguing about your analysis of Southern Unionists was that uh, other than a shared unionism, there seems no way to predict why one white Southerner would be a unionist and another one would not. You point out that the traditional argument, uh, the traditional interpretation has been that, well, the white unionists were non-slaveholders. They were poor mountain folk. They were ignorant. They were insular. And they were filled with class hatred. And that's why they didn't support the Confederacy. Uh, but you found that's not the case at all. Well, there is a, there is a kernel of truth to that, to that mm-hmm. uh, analysis. Um, there is certainly, especially in, in, in pockets of the, of the Deep South, uh, places like northern Alabama are, say, are, are not part of the Black Belt. They have less uh, intensive investment in slavery as an institution and slavery economically mm-hmm. uh, than other parts of the state and other parts of the region. So there is, there is, a, there is something to that. But there's one of the things I've found, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that came through, is the diversity of backgrounds uh, that led people to this shared unionism, uh, this common ground that they sh- that they s- stood on during the war, mm-hmm. um, and how once the war was over, and the union, you know, uh, preserved, mm-hmm. how that common ground uh, disappeared almost immediately, and unionists in the deep south. Um, 
found themselves disagreeing on on any number of issues that the the overriding cause of union had papered over during the war. Um, one thing that I, I also found that I found uh, that surprised me in my research, and I think um, is is worth uh, is worth mentioning, is that when we talk about unionism in the in the Confederacy, when you look at places like Eastern Tennessee, West Virginia, where it, it where the the vast majority of Confederate state uh, unionists from Confederate states did come from. Mm-hmm. These are, are Whig regions, uh, places that tended to vote Whig were not, um, had a more nationalist mm-hmm. kind of uh, political outlook. But I found that in the Deep South, in places like Alabama and Louisiana, um, and this is not uniformly true, but white unionists tended to be Democrats. Um, they tended to be uh, Andrew Jackson style and really Andrew Johnson style unionists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one thing that I found really fascinating uh, that I don't think is is particularly uh, widely appreciated is that um, in in places around New Orleans and especially uh, in northern Alabama, Stephen Douglas carried a number of counties uh, in the 1860 election. And these are the places that that pro- provided the most white Union soldiers from Alabama also voted for Stephen Douglas. Um, in the 1860 election, because these are democratic people, they are people who are who who have democratic politics, um, and they are they they don't identify. They know that Breckinridge can't win the election. They're not Whigs. They're not so they can't. They're not going to vote for Bell. Um, so they vote for for Douglas, the, the ostensibly northern Democratic candidate, because he is for them the unionist candidate uh, hmm. in the region. And their democratic politics um, is going to, uh, I found, had really very significant uh, ramifications or impacts during Reconstruction, uh, when their their they they return uh, to a democratic political uh, alignment. So the deep, deep South unionists also show us the, the, as you say, the diversity of political backgrounds, economic backgrounds. Uh, that could arrive at a common ground of of unconditional union. The, uh, the the way that this these unionists uh, you know coalesce, even though they come from different backgrounds, different ages, different economic classes, uh, and sometimes different political parties, uh, but they share this this fervent unionism uh, enough to to serve in the military. How it all all then dissipates after the war is really uh, uh, again I think one of the important contributions of this book that you would think that that would be that the these people who remain true to the United States during the war would be the obvious uh, place to go to find leaders for the post-war reconstructed states. They're they're native Southerners. They're not. Uh, carpetbaggers coming down from the north. Uh, they're white, so they don't offend local sensibilities in that way. Uh, but as you show, they, they, that their role doesn't last all that long. I, I want to get back to that topic before we finish, but l- let's talk a bit uh, about the, the three regiments. Uh, and in particular, maybe we'll start with the, the most dramatic one uh the the third example the tennessee 
13th uh, Tennessee Cavalry, uh, Bradford's Battalion. Oh, wait, were they cavalry? No, I've forgotten already. They were. Have to look they at were yes, they were. Um, all of these are cavalry regiments. Um, so they, their most notable role, the one that you focus on, is is what happens to them at uh, at Fort Pillow. Uh, give us a, a, a one minute summary of what happens to them, and we'll pick up why that's so important after the break. Yeah, well, I think your listeners will be familiar with Fort Pillow. It's it's sure. a fine word for brutality. It's it's probably the the single greatest uh, or most infamous massacre of the Civil War when Bedford Forest Confederates um, executed um, the garrison of, of Fort Pillow uh, in in West Tennessee who were attempting to surrender. The surrender was not accepted. They were put to the sword. Uh, brutality that shocked the the North. Um, but. One thing that I don't think is uh, is is particularly often told as part of that story is that half of the garrison of Fort Pillow uh, were white Southern Unionists, um, residents um, recruited from the West Tennessee area, and that their leader, uh, Colonel Bradford, uh, was executed summarily uh, by Forrest's men uh, as a punishment for be- being captured in command of, of black troops. Uh, this was the threatened retribution that, you know, people who have seen the movie Glory, for example, that, that white officers taken uh, in command of black troops will be put to death. This this is where that happened during the Civil War uh, with Bradford. And well, uh, it's been sort of buried because of a technicality. I think we have a break coming up. We do have a break. We'll, we'll take a break right now. We'll come back and talk more with our guest, Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Clayton J. Butler, author of True Blue, Un- White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. We're talking about uh, the third of the three regiments that, that uh, Clayton looks at in this book, the 13th Tennessee Cavalry, who are in uh, who, who share the fate of the black garrison of Fort Pillow when Nathan Bedford Forrest's men massacred them. And I, it was really interesting to read this because as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, well, white soldiers in the crater were shown no quarter. They were fighting next to black troops, but not in the same numbers. Uh, here, these white troops, you point out, it's not just that they're fighting next to black troops. That is uh, uh, a capital offense in the eyes of, of many white Southern soldiers, but they're also the fact that they are themselves white Southerners. That seems to really infuriate Forrest's troops. Yes, and and not only are they white Southerners, they're they're known personally uh, to mm-hmm. many of, of of Forrest's men. I mean, they're some of them um, are deserters from Forrest's uh, command, um, and Forrest himself, uh, at least. Um, at, on new New Bradford, um, mm-hmm. not that they were they were close, but they were they were not unacquainted. Um, and there's a sense that, that when when Forrest's men are attacking, Forrest's men are attacking Fort Pillow. They know who's inside. Um, mm-hmm. It's not it's not a they they what they're doing there is sending as much a political message as uh, conducting a military operation. Um, they they know who's in the fort, who's manning the fort, and what they represent. And this is something that, to Confederates, is deeply offensive and um, and infuriating to them. So, the 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 story has it, it resonates through the North, uh, as you point out. There there's no uh, apologies or regret for it shown throughout the South. Uh, but this bad, this harsh treatment of white Southern Unionists is not limited to to this incident. Uh, even before the war, to be a white Southern Unionist in the Deep South was a risky undertaking. Uh, I mean, you describe people being lynched, uh, people being murdered for this. It's true. It's described as a reign of terror um, by contemporaries, uh, unionists in in the South, many of whom have become refugees, have their houses burned, um, some of whom are killed. Um, so there is absolutely violence, harassment um, of of avowed unionists by by Confederate uh, paid, uh, nationalists, and. Um, this is something that stirs up a great deal of sympathy in the North. Um, in when the North is hemming and hawing uh, about slavery, whether it's something that that ought to be affected by the war early in you know in 1861, 1862, what do we do about uh, slavery in terms of fight, conducting this war? What's uncontroversial is the United States' duty to its loyal citizens in the southern white citizens in the southern states. Of course, blacks mm. were not. Uh, citizens uh, in these southern states prior to the war. So the North, the, the United States' duty to its loyal citizenry who have become trapped in this 
rebellious national experiment of the Confederacy is something that galvanizes the North, uh, the Northern United States, um, early on in the war. And uh, you, you see, you see lots of editorial speeches, even art, uh, popular artwork uh, depicting the plight of of unionists, uh, white unionists in the in the Southern states. When you in your discussion of the first Alabama cavalry regiment, another white regiment, you that really seems to 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 dominate their their importance. So they are they are highly symbolic. They're they're all uh, they are native born white Southerners, and uh, they're they also uh, you point out they they accept emancipation. They they are not anti-slavery. That's not why they become uh, uh, Union soldiers. But their nationalism, their their support, their patriotism for the United States outweighs any racism they might feel. Uh, anything to hurt the the Confederacy is okay with them. So so they end up supporting. That's right. Yes, and and again, the Northern press, uh, the, I should say, the Republican Northern press makes a huge, mm-hmm. great deal of white Southerners, white Southern Unionists uh, acceptance of emancipation as a war measure, um, as as both a a testament to the 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 degree uh, of their of their unconditional unionism and its its feasibility um, in terms of uh, moving forward as as a reunited country that the the unionists of the of the south even even these these white southerners accept emancipation as a necessary war measure they view it as a, a just punishment uh, for the secessionists they view it as a, as a, a successful war measure to deprive the confederacy of of manpower and a future check on future on on a, the possibility of a future civil war i mean everybody at the time uh, is 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 aware of the fact that slavery is the issue over which secession mm-hmm. happens, and so getting rid of slavery as an institution is viewed, if not as just in and of itself, and just as done to enslaved people, which to some in the North is the case, but not to all in the North. It mm-hmm. is viewed as a pragmatic way of preventing such a conflagration from breaking out in the future. Again, you know, say twenty years later. I thought it was very interesting that the the first Alabama cavalry was intentionally used by uh, by William Sherman as as one of the vanguards of his march uh, across Georgia. Yeah, they uh, as as you said, there was a terrific amount of violence, harassment against white unionists in in these places, especially in places like Alabama, where they're they're really uh, in this on the marge on the margins of society, and they have to endure over a year, really about a year between secession and the arrival, uh, the first wave of, of union, union troops, union military in, into their section of the country. So during that year, they, they really go through a lot. And whenever they're given the opportunity, they, they're not slow to take a measure of revenge against the, the, the secessionist class, uh, who they view as responsible for their suffering their, and their loss. And Sherman knows this, and Sherman really lets them loose in Georgia to the point that they're among the worst, uh, sort of most notorious offenders um, uh, in terms of the, um, the the harassment, the destruction of property, the theft, the, uh, the, the, what is it, the foraging that goes mm-hmm. on, uh, to put a, a euphemistic term uh, on it. 
Uh, Sherman knows exactly what he's doing, uh, letting these Alabamians uh, in, putting these Alabamians in the vanguard. They they are they are uh, the most personally victimized of any Union soldiers uh, by the by the Confederates and by the secessionist class. And so, um, by putting them out front, he he's quite conscious of what he's doing there. And and of course. They're from Alabama, and they're marching through Georgia, and as college football fans will know, Alabama, Georgia, no love is lost there. Um, there are, the, you know, they are mostly Alabamians, but as I found in my in my research, there is a particularly prominent Georgian uh, who is also on that march, um, mm. ends up in command of a company. He's, he's uh, this incident actually appears in, in Sherman's memoirs because it, it made such an impression on him, but he was... Near Milledgeville, and mm-hmm. uh, a, uh, a form, an enslaved, uh, formerly enslaved man, liberated by Sherman's arrival, recognized um, Captain Snelling was his name. Uh, was was ecstatic to see him in the the, the blue uniform of of, of his, his liberators, and uh, Snelling asked uh, permission to go pay a visit to his uncle's his secessionist uncle's um, cotton plantation. Uh, which he destroyed with great glee and ceremony. Um, <laughs> so uh, that's a particularly uh, sort of theatrical example of uh, of this sort of revenge that is taking place um, in 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 Georgia uh, by by these white Southerners. And it really does put a personal face on it that that this Georgia Union soldier knew knew exactly who his target was there. Now, in the last two chapters of the book, you talk about Reconstruction, and we touched on this a little bit earlier. Uh, in spite of their their loyalty to the Union, in some cases their delight in, in destroying Confederate property, their willingness to risk their lives, uh, when all is over, they find themselves back in, in a hard place. They... they the first two years of the war of, of Reconstruction, they they're back on the bottom rail. It seems within the Southern society, they are. Um, they, they they find themselves in a similar situation to the one they found themselves in during the Secession winter and in the, at the uh, the onset of, of, of the Confederacy, because um, as as students of the Civil War and people familiar with Civil War and Reconstruction know. Um, the Confederates return uh, after the war. Many of the Confederates that come home are, are, for the most part, completely unrepentant and, and rapidly rehabilitated into civil life um, because of the policies uh, enacted and, and sort of uh, propagated by, by President Johnson. It's something that I think is really not properly appreciated in in, in, in public understanding of the war that that. Johnson is Johnson is a Democrat. Uh, Johnson is a white Southern Democrat uh, who hates slavery and enslaved people mm-hmm. uh, and black people. And it's something that I think is really hard to, to drive home. You can't drive it home enough that almost the minute the Civil War ends and Lee surrenders, Lincoln is assassinated and replaced by a white with a, with a white Southern Democrat for president. Uh, and the effect that that has on uh, and and his his courting of the the, the former Confederate um, leadership and former you know prominent white Southern leadership 
has a disastrous effect uh, for for white unionists who look to Johnson and are couldn't have been more crestfallen because they see him as one of their own. They see him as 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 emblematic of their entire ideology and struggle. But he he really does. Uh, they feel very very much abandoned by him and his policies. Now they the, the white Southern unionists almost have their moment during Congressional Reconstruction. There's some alliance with uh with, with republicans from the north so-called carpetbaggers with uh the newly enfranchised freedmen uh, but this this doesn't last the uh the the moment no. fades it's always a tenuous alliance uh this <laughs> triumvirate of white southern republicans uh northern white northerners and formerly enslaved people who make up the um, the electorate of Republicans in the in the South, especially the Deep South, it's always tenuous, and it ultimately succumbs to the social pressure and the violence and harassment uh, of the Klan, um, the marginalization they suffer um, as a result of that, and and ultimately, as I said earlier, their shared unionism during the war. Um, papers over their fundamental differences of values after the war. Uh, and these white Southerners are are really ambivalent at best about sharing a political allegiance with formerly enslaved people. And one thing that I I, uh, I found that I thought put it very very well was in Debau's review. Uh, there's mm-hmm. an editorial uh, in the late 1860s commenting on the the situation facing white Southern union, former Unionists and Republicans, and it says essentially, better your friend across the road than your friend in New Hampshire. You know, you cannot oppose an overwhelming public feeling and sooner or later you will go down. And that essentially is was what is faced by these former unionists. Their only friends politically really that could prop them up are up in New Hampshire. They're not across the road. And that's ultimately untenable for them. It, it, in that sense, it's, it's really a tragic story that uh, after all they sacrifice and after the victory of, of union arms, uh, the the old order, the old racial order is restored. Uh, if not slavery, then then still the hierarchy remains. It's uh, it's it's a fascinating story, though. And listeners, you will want to take a look at this book. It's called True Blue: White Unionists in the Deep South During the Civil War and Reconstruction. It's written by Clayton J. Butler, who has been our guest tonight. Clayton, it was a pleasure reading this book and a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.